Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of really diving into the numbers in the back end of Amazon? Because I think an awful lot of sellers get onto this marketplace without knowing entirely what they're getting into. I guess I just wanted to tee it up with that, but I'd love to hear uh, you speak just a little bit to me. Like, what do a lot of sellers not even know walking into this? Yeah, I think it, it is complicated. So the numbers are, are, if you guys have ever pulled up a unified transaction report from Amazon, it's a disgusting spreadsheet, right? It's not nobody, including me, by the way, loves the idea of looking at that spreadsheet. But the data is crucial because, you know, you think about why do you get into this, into this business versus, uh, let's say, for instance, Luke, you and I were going to go start like mowing lawns. Okay, we have a hard expense of buying a, a lawnmower. But then our actual profit margin per lawn cut is really, really high. We don't have a lot of cost to get sold. And we don't really have a lot of advertising because we're probably just a dude in the neighborhood with word of mouth. And so our entire game, if we're in the lawn maintenance business, is to fully utilize our asset that we bought this lawn. Hey, podcast listener. Welcome to the Eco D2C podcast, where we pick apart the strategies and growth journeys behind today's most successful mission-driven businesses. Even if you feel alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right here in your earbuds, you are joined by other entrepreneurs and leaders seeking to grow their businesses and impact on the world. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, check out ecod2c.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Eco DDC podcast. My name is Luke, and I'm here with Tyler Jeffco. Tyler, how are you? Luke, I'm having a good day, man. Thanks for having me. Great to hear. Tyler and I have known each other for some time. Tyler is the founder and CEO of Seller Accountant, where he exercises his passion for helping sellers maximize their businesses. Tyler provides financial coaching for sellers, typically uh, sellers that are totaling over $100 million per year in e-commerce sales. He also leads the Sellers Roundtable an exclusive mastermind group for seven and eight figure sellers. Before founding Seller Accountant, Tyler was the co-founder and managing partner for Care to Continue, a home healthcare company that grew from zero to a hundred employees in four years. Tyler and I connect on a lot of things, you know, about every month or every other month in terms of the e-commerce space in particular. He's a CEO, he's an entrepreneur, he's a fractional CFO, and we couldn't be more thrilled to have him here. Tyler, without further ado, before we get into business, can you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know? Yeah. So, and since I'm talking to you, I'll uh, I'll acknowledge that I kind of have an OCD thing that happens every year. I love math. I love competition. And so finding ways to combine those two things are, is really fun for me. And so last year, that uh, that kind of obsession it was chess. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Luke, is you absolutely whipped my ass when I figured out that you also play chess. And, and so here's what I learned, uh, dear listeners, that there's a difference between being passionate about something like chess and being good at it. And I'm the guy that enjoys doing it. Luke is actually really, really good. Chess, and but it, honestly, it's it's amazing how cathartic it can be as a kind of a busy guy. I've got a family. I love my wife, my kids. I've got a business. I love that too. And it can be fun just to turn that part of your brain off and turn on something else that just wants to get better and learn. And so for me, right now, that has been uh, chess. Those were really good games. I really enjoy those. And I know you did. <laughs> you did great. You did great. It's uh, I played a bunch when I was a kid. I'm kind of asking my youthful nerd dumb that never really sees the speed rail. But yeah, I, I had a lot of years playing it. So hence the, like, I, I felt like I was walking in maybe with an unfair advantage there, but those were 
those were really fun games. I would gladly play again. I, I'm, I'm trying to get up to your level. I did learn for those of you guys who would never play chess, like there's a gigantic difference between a 1200 rated chess player and like an 1800 rated chess player. And uh, you don't know that until you try. But yeah, honestly, man, we'll, we'll have to play again. And for those of you guys out there, they're looking for something fun to kind of dive into. It's a deep enough game that it can kind of keep you busy for a few years, kind of learning it. And for those of us who are lucky enough to learn as kids, I didn't. I first time I ever played, I was 37. And so, you know, there, there is a definite advantage to having, you know, learned some of those patterns when you were like seven or 10 or something like that. But yeah. Tyler, can you tell us a little bit about your company and the services that you provide? Yeah. So Seller Accountant, uh, you can find us at selleraccountant.com. We only do two things. We provide bookkeeping. So kind of think about sexy bookkeeping. How do you make bookkeeping able to get through due diligence and kind of pass muster for really complex? And by the way, we only do this for e-commerce. So bookkeeping and then the second service is the fractional CFO that you mentioned a minute ago. And so if you encounter a company that's yeah, roughly half a million to 15 million a year in revenue and sells their products online, and, and, and they're looking for something to get off their plate. A lot of times the back office bookkeeping is one of the first things that they're looking to get rid of. And there aren't a lot of accounting firms out there that are actually good at e-commerce accounting. We're one of them and we're grateful to get to serve a bunch of sellers out there. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you on our podcast talking to our listeners about this topic. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of really diving into the numbers in the back end of Amazon? Because I think an awful lot of sellers get onto this marketplace without knowing entirely what they're getting into. And we're on the marketing side, like EcoDTC, like we're, we're digital marketers, we're managing ads, we're optimizing listings, we're solving problems in the account, sure, but we are not accountants and we do not typically touch the financial reports because they're such a bear. It's very frequent that we talk with brands that, don't, that do not really know their true costs, of selling on the platform. And we do an awful lot on the front end to try to help them get their mind wrapped around their numbers to be, you know, using the FBA calculators and to be, you know, measuring what's coming back and actually make sure that, you know, uh, as we engage with them, that Amazon even makes business sense for them the way that they've set it up. I guess I just wanted to tee it up with that, but I'd love to hear uh, you speak just a little bit to like, what do a lot of sellers not even know walking into this? Yeah, I think it, it is complicated. So the numbers are, are if you guys have ever pulled up a unified transaction report from Amazon, it's a disgusting spreadsheet, right? It's not nobody, including me, by the way, loves the idea of looking at that spreadsheet. But the data is crucial because, you know, you think about why do you get in this, into this business versus, uh, let's say, for instance, Luke, you and I were going to go start like mowing lawns. Okay, we have a hard expense of buying a, a lawnmower. But then our actual profit margin per lawn cut is really, really high. We don't have a lot of cost of goods sold. And we don't really have a lot of advertising because we're probably just a dude in the neighborhood with word of mouth. And so our entire game, if we're in the lawn maintenance business, is to fully utilize our asset that we bought this lawnmower. But when it comes to e-commerce, the fundamentals of the business are, oh boy, we can scale and not just have to scale our time. I don't have to go mow every lawn. I can actually sell products and make money. The problem is, is that my profit margins aren't going to be nearly as good as if I'm like mowing the lawn. I've going to have, I'm going to have really strong cost to get sold. Oh, oh yeah. By the way, we did a study last year, Luke and Bezos, Amazon, the boys there in Seattle, they get 44.3% of every dollar of sales for our entire population of, of a little over 200 million in sales that we keep an eye on each year. And that's Think about that. That's huge. Just for my like small pile of clients in our little corner of the universe here, almost a hundred million dollars of their sales uh, on, on their P&Ls collectively goes not to them, not even to the IRS, but to Bezos and to Amazon. And so because those fee structures are so high and because there's so many thousands of transactions, you have to have a system 
for keeping up with profitability. You can't afford to kind of to fake it or hope or wish. And, you know, and, and, and so here's what normally happens is any business you start, and I would include an accounting firm, by the way, in this, if you start something from scratch, your job as the CEO is to find a path to revenue. I don't care about, I didn't do my own damn books for the first six months of, of owning a bookkeeping firm because I only had one job and it was to go find a path to revenue. Well, once I find a path to revenue, I have to pretty quickly learn how to manage the finances of my business because if I don't, I might crash it. And, and that can happen really quickly once you crest 10 or 20K a month as an e-commerce seller. And so it's just time to uh, get in there a little bit more and learn more about where your money's going. Folks, I really can't emphasize how important what Tyler's talking about enough. We've seen brands doing doing millions and millions in sales think that they're killing it on Amazon. And maybe as like an overall like promotion activity, they might've been succeeding in that. But in terms of profitability, they absolutely were not. You need to make sure that your backend is set up in a way that in which you're actually set up to win. It's very, very easy to lose track of some of these things and or to just not quite know what they are from the outset and then get burned really, really hard later. We've seen an awful a lot of companies come to people like us or better people like Tyler to get this analysis going and often they're shocked by the results. So this might not be a surprise if you're listening to this or perhaps there, you know, there is a surprise coming, but it's so critical to make sure that you're structured in a way to win. Tyler, why did you, why did you start your company? Yeah, so I um, was really fortunate while I was in grad school. I, I had been a banker. I went to get an MBA, kind of a nerd business degree, and had the opportunity to join a startup to build a healthcare company about a decade ago. Uh, that was the company that you mentioned in the in the really gracious bio that got kind of big, and I got to sell uh, my my portion. I was not the only owner, but I, I got to sell my portion of it. And you know, my wife Luke said she's like Tyler, I love you. I'm not moving to a big city, so you need to figure out some way to make a living that keeps you in a <laughs> in a small market like we live in. And so I was like, I get it. Or orders received. Yes, ma'am. And so I started looking for something to start. And I just love e-commerce. I was an eBay seller back when I was in college. So just kind of building uh, guitars and buying and selling parts and, you know, hawking video games or whatever it is I could try to make a few bucks on. And so when I got to realize, and this was the epiphany, I don't feel great about not knowing this, but it was like 2017 when I realized that an Amazon seller was a thing. Like prior to that, I just thought it's magic. You go to Amazon and you get products. I now realize that my customers now, you guys that might be listening to this, are actually the majority of the GMV that flows through Amazon. So we just decided we really wanted to get into coaching. Uh, maybe that's the final thing I'll, I'll mention is in my prior job as the CEO of that company, healthcare company, actually coaching other CEOs was my favorite thing I did. It wasn't, I didn't ever get paid to do it, but just I was in some coaching groups where I really got to be involved with helping other people find success. And, and then the third thing I'm going to mention is that as that CEO of that company that grew really quickly, we, we uh, went from five to 50 employees in one year. Like, so that was a, just, that was a terrible year. It was awful. I would never want to do that again. But what we did during that year also is that I, as an accountant who had been a banker for five years, who had an MBA in finance, almost crashed our finances like seven times that year. And what I realized through just skinning my own knees was, oh my gosh, I have got to keep a better eye on my margins. I have to know how much cash flow I have and if I'm going to be in trouble next month. And we were in the kind of business where we were waiting sometimes 120 days to let insurance companies pay us. And I had a moment where I had like 200 grand in accounts receivable and 30 grand a week in payroll going out. And I was just like, I don't think you guys can like, uh, relate to the, like you're at two o'clock in the morning in the fetal position and you're, and you're like, what is going on? You know? And, 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 and so I think that was the way I had to learn was, okay, we're going to have to keep our stuff straight. We're going to have to know exactly what our margins are. We're going to have to be better at pricing. We're going to have to be better at marketing. 
And so when I got the chance to start another business, it was pretty intuitive for me to kind of use my accounting background and actually help entrepreneurs. And that's where really seller accounting came from. Can you walk us through a process that you take sellers through on Amazon? Two processes came to mind. Let me start with one. If we have time, you can ask me about the second one. But I think you can't think strategically in the CFO side, which would be the second one, until you think about the blocking and tackling of bookkeeping. So I would just say any seller that has decided this is not a hobby anymore, but this is going to be a business should walk walk through a process of figuring out where their money is going. So that when you go to like a conference, let's say you go to like Prosper in Vegas or something like that, you don't just have to talk about the vanity metric of sales because it's meaningless, right? Sales is, is vanity, profit is sanity. And so taking a minute to actually, you know, pay 50 bucks a month for zero or QuickBooks online, get some kind of a basic accounting system. Uh, there's a tool out there called A2X accounting that makes it really easy to kind of take those complex 14 day settlements and put them into your accounting system. I would recommend maybe looking at something like that. And and then, so that's on the sales side. That's just basic bookkeeping. And, and then the other part that's uh, that's maybe more challenging, but still really important is just to understand what your value per unit. If I'm selling this black pen, I've got the black one here. I got to know how much value is in the black one. It cost me whatever. I'm just making up numbers. Let's say I've got a dollar in product and a dollar in shipping. So my landed cost of goods sold is $2. I really need to make sure that my marketing team, that Luke knows this because helping your marketing team understand what their actual budget is for advertising the black one is got to be predicated on how much money I had to spend to buy it. And so that's kind of pivoting from process one to process two. Process one is whatever your um, level of bookkeeping is, let's just level it up a little bit so that when you look at your profit, and by the way, I'm going to give you, here's the test. If, if you want to know whether your bookkeeping is good, let me just give it to you right now. If you can pull up a profit and loss statement and split it by month. So you think about it like June next to July, next to August, next to September. And when you like run the, the gross profit margin, it's like relatively consistent. That's good. That means you have really good bookkeeping. High five, keep doing it. But if if you look at your gross profit month over month or period over period, and you see negative 5% one month and 80% the next month and 30 in the middle, and it's all over the place, that tells you that you're probably doing your bookkeeping on a cash basis, which is too simplistic for a scaling e-commerce brand. You can't get away with that as an e-commerce brand. That's great. Um, I have our own onboarding process coming to mind. And I have a couple questions for you there, but uh, was there anything okay. you wanted to say to, to round that off? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, and then I just think maybe the final thing I will say is that once our books are in order, the second process is really a, a process of trying to understand do we have enough cash and how profitable are each of our products so that we can make sure that we're allocating our precious cash to the right products, right? That's kind of the, if you wanted to sum up what a CFO does, by the way, it's that. We got a finite amount of money. We don't want to run out of it. And we want to make sure that we're putting that money against the right problems and not against uh, problems that aren't as efficient. A part of our onboarding process when we're working, when we're beginning to work with a brand that can be a make or break moment in certain ways, depending on how things are structured, is we require that the brands that we work with go through an exercise with the FBA calculator and actually get a sense of what their margins are, including Amazon fees, if they do not know them already. An awful lot of them do not. Is there something we should be factoring in as advertisers who want to set our clients up for success? Is there another thing that we should factor in to this process as we as we get that data because a lot of what I'm on the lookout for so for instance, if we run through this exercise and the brand comes back to us and, and they say like, okay, so we did the calculations, like our margins, including Amazon fees are 10%. I'm going to have a lot to talk with them about advertising goals, what's realistic and what is not. We're not going to get them a nine to one return or that 10 to one return out 
the gate, if at all, if they're like an emerging brand and they just are testing this out and they don't even know what this channel is even going to be able to do for them yet. So when that happens, then we have, then, you know, we suggest increases in pack size, or we talk about price strategy. There's a lot of directions that that can go to resolve this problem to make sure that we're not getting into something that's just going to be an unpleasant surprise six months down the road. Is there something from your perspective that we should be factoring in that maybe that calculator or this exercise is outlined to detects? Well, I mean, I really love this question. I'm, I'm noodling on it a little bit here. And I think if I were helping a, a brand owner or a seller work through that FBA calculator, which is beautiful, right? It kind of gives you the fee preview of what the pick and pack and what the, the percentage commission will be. And you get to kind of type in what your cost of goods sold is, and it'll give you kind of a what you estimate the profit to be. Couple of comments that came to mind when you're when you're talking there, Luke. One is I want to ask the question of the seller at least twice. Are you sure that's the real cost to get sold? And what I mean by that is, have we captured the inbound freight duties, tariffs, any other costs that are really, really material, packaging, that kind of thing? And because um, it can be tempting to just look at the most recent factory re, uh, factory invoice and say, oh, I pay a dollar a piece for these. But wait a minute, Luke, I'm not making money at the end of the month. And then when you dig and you realize, well, actually you paid $5 a piece for these because you forgot about this expense and this expense and this expense. I think that would be key number one because of how incredibly huge the cost of goods sold portion of the PL is. I want to ask that question at least twice in the process to be like, I just want to, I just want to double check here. Are these your cost after they landed? Do we have, are we missing anything here that should be counted? The second thing I would mention that you, you, uh, you were just tossing out the number 10%, but I just want to make this comment for an e-commerce brand, even for consumables, I, I feel I would go so bold to say this because I know margins are even tighter with some of the grocery categories. I think that's a, that's a real thing, but I've got to fight for getting closer to 15 to 20% profit. And this is the crazy thing. I need to be 15 to 20% after Amazon advertising for that product to really be scalable and me still be able to carry some overhead, right? I'm going to have a couple of salaries and softwares. You may, maybe you'll pay accounting boy, or maybe you're paying Luke as your consultant, right? Whoever it is. And I would even say for non-consumables, our target is to make sure that that after advertising profit margin, we call it PAG, post-advertising gross profit. We want PAG which is kind of true profit, to be north of 20%. I really want to fight for more than 20 points because that gives me room to do what you just described, Luke, was uh, we're, we're launching a new variant and we're going to have to overspend on ads for the first 60 days to get this thing going. We're going to have to get the flywheel started. Well, guess what? If you give me a product that's only ever going to have 5% profit after ads, I'm going to have to lose you a crap ton of money to ever get you profitable, If I'm even if I'm a great marketer. And so I want to make sure that I'm approaching the marketplace with products that have enough differentiation, because that's really all pricing is, is the is the measure of value we're generating to our customers. And I love your idea of multi-packing. Like, right, if I'm like, if somebody listens to this and is like, damn it, I sell a $5.99 consumable, what am I going to do? Your point is we're really well taken. Could we find a way to get it up to $14.99 by selling a three-pack or, you know, something like that where we can get some economies of scale? So let's maybe talk about those metrics just a little bit. Like what do metrics for success or failure, even just mediocre sort of look like here? So you mentioned that you like it to have, you know, post advertising, post activities of providers like us, like a 15 to 20% for, for scaling. Are there any other benchmarks that brands should have in mind? Like coming onto the platform, let's say net new, is there a margin that you're like, oh, this is this is a great margin to have on the marketplace? And is there a threshold at which is like, you're below this, it could spell trouble? 
Yeah. And I, this is a really good question. So I, I would say, again, that PAG number, just think about it as true gross profit. So I've got cost of goods sold, Amazon fees, and then I'm going to take down advertising. I'm, I'm maybe really not including you in there, Luke. I mean, the the, uh, the uh, consultants and stuff might be later, but what am I actually capturing in, in margin after I spend the money on ads? And I would say that if you're consistently below 20%, you're you're really susceptible to small changes in the market. You have a Amazon takes you down for a week and a half and you lose a little bit of traction. Or if your suppliers uh triple the freight costs like we had in the past year and a half, then you're in you're in a lot of trouble. Um, I think anything closer to 25% profit margin is what I would say is a really healthy, sustainable, even maybe scalable brand. And the most scalable, if I can ever get north of 30, and if, for those of you who think this is impossible, it's not. We have several clients that command 33% or 34%, even more after advertising. And for those brands, their ability to really get premium valuations in the market and their ability to raise money cheap, people love throwing money at you when you got that kind of profit margin, right? Your ability to to tolerate having more inventory in stock, you know, you know, kind of carrying more inventory in your balance sheet. All profit solves a ton of problems, Luke. And so maybe you want to simplify it and zero in here. The two things that are going to drive profitability more than anything else for an e-commerce brand are cost of goods sold, total cost of goods sold. I'm, I'm not talking about Amazon fees here. I'm talking about like just landed product cost of goods sold and advertising. And so this is why this is such a great conversation here is, yes, I'm going to pay a lot of money to Amazon but I can't control that. The 15% commission is the 15% commission, or if I'm in another category, it's that percentage. I might be able to get my pick and pack fee down a little bit, but I'm kind of at the mercy of Amazon there. They're going to sell my stuff and they're going to charge me a pick and pack fee. The two most controllable levers are going to be, if I have a really, really high cost to get sold factor, let's say when I look at my PL, product cost to get sold is like 40%. Like it's almost half of my sale price. I do not have much budget for advertising. I want to kind of I want you guys to kind of view those two on a seesaw. They've got to be in leverage with each other. So if I have really really expensive cogs, then I may only have a few points available to invest in ads. And if I've got premium cogs, like maybe I'm only having 20% of my budget go to actually secure the product, oh baby, now I've got a little bit of room in the budget to actually put the pedal on the metal and and, and so understanding in concert, the sum of those two line items on your profit and loss statement. What's my actual product cost to get sold? What's my actual total advertising cost to sales is I believe the most kind of ground level, easiest, lowest amount of work way to understand if you're profitable or not. What is a common pitfall that you see brands falling into? That's a good question. I mean, I could take this a lot of different ways. I mean, to go back to the first point I made, I think the most common pitfall is still opting out of knowing where your numbers are. Like the mistake that I told you I made when we were scaling our company too quickly and I just didn't have my eye on the ball. So I think knowing where your money is going so that you can operate by a plan and on purpose, weather storms, uh, you do not want to be one emergency away from being out of business. Uh, that's that's an, that's your fault. That's an avoidable. The fact that there will be another black swan event, may not be COVID, may not be supply chain disruptions, it may not be bank collapse from 2008. Some black swan event will likely happen and it's actually an opportunity for you and me to make more money if we're ready. And so I think the biggest mistake is to opt out of planning financially and it's really important. The other biggest mistake that just kind of happened on accident because of how weird our market was is Luke, you and I have talked about this before, but a year and a half ago, everyone was selling their businesses and they were being so simple. Actually, here's here, let me give you the avatar. The most profitable businesses in the world, it seemed like a year and a half ago, sold like two SKUs, 
only on amazon.com and uh, zero complexity, zero infrastructure, zero employees, zero warehouse, zero, 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 right? Because the aggregators were trumping up these values and buying them. What's happened as the world has come back down to earth, right? We've kind of seen a sobering is now's the time to invest in the core of your business that will drive future value. You're not going to be able to sell your business right now in the way you would have been able to a year ago, but you have the opportunity right now to call out the SKUs that are not working to maybe launch a new marketplace or a new channel, like a Shopify site. Uh, it's hard by the way, but you might want to do it. You may have the opportunity to deepen the relationships with your suppliers. You, maybe you've never done that before and you're new to the game. Fly to China whenever we can again, you know, Drink some sake, bring a Rolex, like do the things, even if it's just an email, find ways to direct, directly impact the relationships with your key partners. Do those kinds of things that, by the way, Luke and I, you, we've known this is the right thing to do forever, but we took our eye off that ball over the last two years because of how frothy the money was for these simple kind of half-assed businesses. And so now's the time to actually continue building out your customer relationships, your branding, your messaging, your content, um, your accounting, maybe like do the infrastructure work now. So that when the next wave of frothy, sexy money for selling your business comes across the pike here in a year or two, you're ready and you've got the business that can sell for maximum value. How have you seen the market move in post COVID, if we can even call it that, the, you know, obviously we saw just a massive surge in everything e-commerce during that time, but as the pandemic has faded into the background, so to speak, uh, what, what trends are you seeing on your end? Yes, I think the most recent, uh, you and I are talking kind of in the middle of the fall, 2022, and the quarter three sales that came from Amazon kind of confirmed what we all suspected. And, and it's this, that there was a significant COVID bump. Everyone's like, duh, we knew that. What we didn't know is if it was going to revert back to the original line. So if you can kind of imagine a graph with a trend line, um, everyone has seen e-commerce growing. It's a great field to be in. It's still a great field to be in, by the way. And then we saw this gigantic astronomical growth during COVID because people weren't able to go to the grocery store or, or to Walmart or whatever, and they were buying online. And what we have now unequivocally seen is it has reverted back to the original growth line, literally exactly. So if you could make a straight line regression from 2013 to the present. And with some acceleration, if you were to graph out what you thought actual demand, people actually buying stuff online would be, it's right back there. And so this 2020 and 2021 were kind of this huge anomaly that destroyed the supply chain and stuffed too much uh, profit in some businesses and too much inventory in some warehouses. And, and I guess I just want to bring this up to say, we're still okay, but it ain't going to double again right now. It's okay. We're back to that normal, which by the way, for any other industry, if you could tell me we're going to get 20 to 25% growth year over year, because we just happen to be where people are trending and people are still trending. Grandma is still more likely to buy on Amazon now than she was three years ago, that kind of thing. Like, of course we're in the right market, but we just need to realize that we're back on the original track. We were running at like 30 miles an hour for year, year, year. And then it went to hundred miles an hour. Now it's back to 30. And again, that just speaks to, it's time to kind of make sure that we're going back to the fundamentals. Okay. Do I know my customer? What is she like? How can I orient my brand around her? How can I develop the sales channels and products that really win? How can I do the hard work of developing my backend and my infrastructure and my accounting and my supply chain management? How can I lean into my relationships with my marketing vendors? You know, Luke, I think about what you guys do such a great job of. Now's the time to place those bets, those investments that will pay off. You're in the right business. It's just not going to be easy money like it was two years ago. How is your field changing? 
So I, I mean, my field, I would still say I'm kind of in this accounting field, which if, in case you guys have uh, never learned about accountants, we're terrible. Like this is the most antiquated industry in the world. Like the average accountant is still trying to bill you an hourly rate and almost be like if you uh, go to the Chevy dealership and they try to bill you by per bolt. You know, this baby has 2000 bolts on it. That's how we're going to, that time of materials model doesn't really work that well. So the, the industry is slowly shifting towards more of a, what everyone else does was that you buy an outcome instead of an input. Uh, so I'm happy about that. The other thing that I think is shifting is that um, web-based firms like mine that are kind of nimble and focused in a niche are thankfully, I, I feel grateful that I timed the market this way, but we're in a really good spot because the big, hairy, lots of overhead accounting firms are struggling a little bit more right now than we are. Uh, beyond that, I don't really know if I have anything to add there. I love talking about this stuff, but I, I don't uh, I don't want to geek out too much on accounting. The business is evolving and people, it's like anything else. People who are evolving are thriving. People who are struggling to evolve are struggling. What is a challenge that you face in your own business? Yeah, I'll tell you the challenge, man. Um, I don't know if this is true for you, Luke, um, but for a lot of my customers, this was true. So I'm telling myself here for a minute. I made a lot more money in 2021 than I'm going to make this year. I'm going to make money this year, but I made a lot more money last year. And I wasn't nearly as good at what I was doing last year as I am now. So think about that. I've gotten better, but I'm getting like less money to get better. And, and the reason is, is that when things are going really, really well, you kind of ignore you kind of ignore issues. Like we had some problems on our team. We had made a couple of bad hires and promotions. We we had made some mistakes in the way we were managing and organizing our processes. And we ignored those because they didn't hurt us. We didn't feel the pain until like the rest of us out there, we got into the beginning of 2022 and there was like an, oh gosh, we're going to have to actually run this business better. We're not going to be able to survive being not intentional. And so we had to make some really hard choices. It was my fault. It wasn't, it was not the personnel's fault. It was my fault. I'm the one that set them up for failure and didn't put them in the right seats. And that's humbling. It's humbling to realize that you hired someone that you like and that you had to let them go because you didn't set up the process in a way that made them successful. And so I'm thankful to say kind of seven months on the other end of that kind of epiphany that we're, we're doing amazingly well as a company. We're growing, you know, I've got 25 employees now we're going to continue growing. But it, it hasn't been without mm, issues. And those issues, unfortunately, Luke, tend to start at the top. And that's uh, kind of what we found. Oh, no, I, I I hear you. It's it's really interesting. And I know you and I have talked about this at, at length, the sort of post-pandemic hangover that an awful lot of providers in the space are going through. Maybe they grew really quickly or maybe just the, the crunch, right? Now, like problems in supply chain. Like when our partners and our clients face problems, we face problems. And an awful lot of companies and brands are going through like a, a bit of a squeeze right now for a variety of reasons. You know, we all kind of were uh, clinging to some some rocket growth there for a little while. And then, you know, thankfully, like EcoD2C, we're doing, we're doing really well. Maybe in our own optimism, like I was, it's funny, I was talking with, with another agency owner recently and I was like, I was basically pouting because I didn't get more growth this year than I projected and that I wanted. But like, it's at the end of the day, like we're in a really good position, but I think it's because we've set ourselves up to be sustainable. We have a core team. We enjoyed a lot of growth, but we did not bring on like a lot of people in any kind of rushed way. We have at least thus far, you know, taken the route of if we need to cap our book, we'd rather do that than bring on talent that is untested of trying to structure our business in a way so that we're, we're doing right by the clients first, because without them, obviously we're not even here. So 
we've been pretty steady. I mean, we've seen entire agencies like pivot or just kind of like fall out of the space. Like there's a lot of people who were making a lot of money two years ago who are now applying for jobs. From a provider standpoint, from an agency standpoint, being careful even with the opportunity you get, I think is yep. is very important. I, I agree with you. And I've actually talked to two peers in the space literally in the last, I think, week. One was this morning, but I think the other one was recently, like in the last week and a half, that have done exactly what you said, where there has been uh, one of them, unfortunately, is kind of closing shop and is helping their team find other places to work. And the other one is is doing a dramatic pivot that included cutting about 80% of their staff. So it does speak to what you talked about there. It's like, you know, sometimes being a little steadier can be good. And lest we be so doom and gloom here, I do, I do want to remind everyone, um, by the way, my opinion real quickly, I think we're going to see things get a little worse before they get better. And I actually think that's a good thing for investors that are savvy, that are ready. And so I just, uh, just want to encourage you that every great wealth transfer activity in history, it comes at the wake of some hardship financially, like the market turns and there's opportunities. And so for what it's worth, it's easy to either, uh, like you said earlier, whine over what has or hasn't happened. What's really crucial right now is to make sure you're clear in your vision and then just execute, 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 execute. And an old mentor say, he's like, listen, man, your job, he was a, he was a country boy. He says, your job is to your job is to go to the trough every day. Someday there's going to be food. You don't know when. Your, your job is to go to the trough. And so I feel like as an entrepreneur, <laughs> you're like half your audience is like, oh God, the Georgia redneck. But um, our jobs are to execute our mission and the market is going to get better and we need to be ready to take the right next steps as they become apparent. Well, you're talking to a West Virginia redneck uh, living in living in Denver. We'll be, if we're going to be rednecks, we'll be rednecks together. What is your next step for growth? Our current focus for growth is uh, there's a book out there called Traction by Gina Wickman that I've flirted with for years and we're actually getting serious about fully implementing as a as a firm. So if you're thinking about how do you get organized, how do you manage complex teams, how do you manage accountability and goals and scorecarding, Traction is a good like kind of study guide for learning how to do that. And you know, look, you and I've talked about this before. Like I have talked a lot about traction. I've been doing it with both my companies like for the last almost decade. This is the first time I actually hired a coach to help me figure out some of the things that I was blind in. And we actually had a um, an outside coach come facilitate our quarterly offsite last month. And I got to be honest with you, man, I was skeptical. I even, I had kind of a bad attitude, like this guy's going to come in and like own my leadership meeting. And it was transformationally different. Having someone that had actually been through training that was an outsider, that was objective, kind of walk us through how to execute. So what we're seeing here immediately, and this has been ongoing for the last really five to six months, is we're, our team is executing better. Our culture is better. Our product was always good because I was willing to roll up my sleeves and my business partner was willing to roll up her sleeves and get in the weeds and do the work to make sure our customers were happy. Like we, we produced a good product anyway, but we did it at much cost to our families until we learn how to build a team that can do it. Right. And so I think I'm encouraged right now because now, um, oh, wow. And this actually brings me to my current problem. I guess a good problem to have for the first time in seller accountants history, I can't outsell my operation team because they're too healthy. And so we historically had a setup team that was bottleneck. And so I could just, eh, let's just do a little marketing here. We'll go speak on a podcast here. We'll go to a, a conference. I couldn't keep up with the demand. And so now for the first time, partly because the market's soft, but partly because my team is better, I'm having to learn how to focus on marketing activities again for myself. And so that's our plan for growth right now is really to, to grow that part of our team, get better content, get better at generating value and relationships with our, because because like, so many um, e-commerce brands out there need our help, but way before they need to actually hire us. Like, so we need to get a better job of just communicating 
replicating some of our thought leadership around driving profitability and cash flow and, and giving that value away. We, we're happy to give it away. We just don't have a great mechanism for giving it away. The podcast is kind of an effort and you know, talking to you is kind of an effort. But anyway, I think that's kind of where we're focused right now. Where can our listeners find you? Okay. So seller accountant, S-E-L-L-E-R, sellerraccountant.com is our website. And then anywhere you might listen to a podcast like this one, uh, return on podcast. So think about trying to get an, instead of an ROI and ROP return on podcast, it's really about the intersection of, of investing and e-commerce. And uh, Luke, you were one of my great guests here a few weeks ago and got great reviews on your episode. So thank you for joining me there. But that's, that's a great way to kind of soak in some content each week that's really related to thought leadership in the space. I think those are probably the two best ways. You can find me everywhere. I, I suck at social media. You're going to see me there, but I don't spend a lot of time there. So go to the website or go visit the podcast. All right, Tyler, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure having you here. Luke, you're the man. Thanks for having me. Hey, podcast listener. That's it for us this week. As always, it's a pleasure having you here. If you want to check out more episodes and learn more about us, visit ecodc.com. See you next time.